The Senate starts to grind to a halt as the Biden administration immediately starts giving ground. The promises that Biden and other Democrats ran on are already being watered down. What is the political character of the Biden administration? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's January 26th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. There are still thousands of troops in Washington, D.C., and Biden had promised to take immediate action to stop the suffering of people around the country from this huge economic downturn from the pandemic, um, from so many issues that are happening for people. There are more arrests from the January 6th assault on Congress still coming, but we haven't yet seen any consequences for Trump. Brian, where are we right now? The United States is still in crisis. The, The January 6th dispersal of Congress, the assault on Congress was dramatic. The last serious refusal by one of the ruling class parties to accept the peaceful transfer of power was in the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln, which precipitated a civil war. That was America's bloodiest war. 650,000 people were killed out of a population of 30 million. An equivalent proportional casualty figure today when the U.S. population hovers around 350 million, would be about 6.5 million dead. That's a big deal. January 6th was dramatic, but it must be viewed, I think, Nicole, in the context of other profound and intersecting crises. In the four weeks prior to the inauguration, 100,000 people died from COVID-19 in the United States. More than 400,000 have died overall. Big agricultural sections or regions of the country are being overwhelmed and overcome by the virus spread. In the week before the inauguration, almost a million people applied for unemployment benefits. That's a million more. And then in the week of the inauguration, Another 950,000 people also applied for unemployment benefits. Since March, more than 62 million people have filed for unemployment benefits. According to official statistics, 8 million more people have been plunged into poverty just since March 2020. 40 million people face eviction once the eviction moratoriums come to an end. 50 million people in the United States, the richest country in the world, are now food insecure, meaning they are facing hunger. There are food lines all over the country. The face of hunger has dramatically shifted in the last year. 
Many who are waiting for food handouts at food banks are people who are gainfully employed, maybe even getting a decent salary or a wage, and probably considered themselves less than a year ago part of the great American middle class. For black America, the multiple cascading crises of capitalism coinciding with COVID have been destructive in a far more disproportionate way than exists for the general population. Walter, when you just think of those numbers and you think, here's a new administration, you think, here's a new administration that not only received more votes than any other presidential campaign in American history, more than 80 million, it not only controls the White House, it controls the House of Representatives. It controls the Senate. The Democrats are the majority in both. This administration can do right now whatever it wants to do. It promised that there was going to be immediate action. And here we are a week later, and they're arguing about who's going to have what committee chair roles, what are the rules for an impeachment trial, a theatrical endeavor that I think is ridiculous and keeps the focus on Donald Trump, the person. And again, you can see all the signs are there that Biden and the Democrats, including their own leaders, are whittling down the relief package promises that they made even a week ago and that were so important, perhaps, in the outcome of the Senate races in uh, Georgia. It's an extraordinary display of something that's not extraordinary, which is the Democrats keep moving to the right and then the country is surprised that the country keeps moving to the right. Well, if the Democrats are moving to the right and the, and the, and the Republicans are already far right, uh, there's no hope for a leftward turn from within the halls of Congress. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The The opportunity that the Democrats have right now is truly, truly historic. I mean, not only do they, as you said, control both houses of Congress and the presidency, they have all of the political momentum on their side. Their political opponents, the Republican Party, both the more, uh, quote unquote, mainstream establishment wing and the far right, perhaps fascistic wing uh, around Donald Trump and Trumpism are, are in disarray. The January 6th attack on Congress led to a profound confusion, demoralization, division in the right wing ranks. I mean, Joe Biden couldn't have asked for more uh, for more political momentum. So the Democrats uh, can do whatever they want to do, like like you said, right? They don't have to rely on a single Republican vote in Congress to pass legislation. And the filibuster, this this idea that you need sixty senators, not fifty percent plus one, to pass things in the Senate, that's that's an invented problem. If the Democrats want the filibuster to go away, they can just decide to make it go away. The filibuster is not a law; it's it's a rule. It's an internal rule that the Senate makes up for themselves. So they can do all of this without any Republican support whatsoever. And so the only conclusion that you can draw is that if they don't take decisive action to solve all these crises, it's because they simply don't want to. Not because they can't. Not because Mitch McConnell isn't allowing to them to, but because they don't want to. Um, so, you know, take the the stimulus package, for instance, um, that already, you know, one point nine trillion dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money, but I think it, it actually really falls short of what's needed. Um, for instance, the stimulus package won't cancel rents. 
um, this stimulus package won't cancel student loan debt, which Biden could actually just do by executive order. The stimulus package won't uh, expand union bargaining rights, something that's so essential to address the rampant inequality that's gotten so much worse under COVID. But but even still, even as insufficient as it is, uh, instead of simply passing it, which they can do, again, with no Republican support, they've instead decided to engage in these negotiations, protracted negotiations, with a group of Republicans who have teamed up with right-wing Democrats, you know, people like Joe Manchin, for instance, um, to, to further water this down. And, and you can tell what Biden's orientation is, his attitude towards this group, by who he deputized to carry out those negotiations. It's Brian Deese. Brian Deese is the National Economic Council director. And right before he joined the administration, he was a senior executive at BlackRock, which is a multi-trillion dollar finance firm, I believe the, the largest private equity firm in the whole world. Um, and so this group, they want to get rid of the $15 an hour minimum wage provision in, in the stimulus proposal. They want to reduce or, you know, quote unquote, make more targeted the f- insultingly small $1,400 one-off stimulus checks that are included in the proposal. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's retreating where you don't have to which makes it not really a retreat. It just makes it your real position. And, you know, the impeachment process, I mean, that's a whole other conversation we can get into. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, the last thing I'll say on this, because I, I mentioned the the filibuster, is that this morning there was an agreement reached between Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans of the Senate, and Chuck Schumer, the leader of the Democrats in the Senate, about the Senate rules, right? This is sort of this arcane procedural thing, but I think really tells us a lot about the politics of what's going on. Um, Mitch McConnell wanted Chuck Schumer to essentially swear in writing that he won't get rid of the filibuster, right? That that he'll um, you know, continue to embrace this millstone around his neck that that forces him to try to get uh, 10 Republicans to support anything that he wants to do unnecessarily. Um, and so essentially what happened is that, you know, Schumer's claiming this is a victory because, you know, he didn't make this pledge to McConnell. But McConnell said that he was willing to back off of the demand for a written pledge to not abolish the filibuster because Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, two right-wing Democratic senators, you know, made the pledge for him, essentially. They were just like, under no circumstances will I ever vote to abolish the filibuster, uh, which they would need to if if the Democrats were going to do it without any Republican support. So essentially, the Republicans won on that, even though Schumer is claiming yeah. it as a victory. Let's listen to um, an audio clip from... We have two audio clips from Bernie Sanders. This is Bernie on CNN. Again, remember, San- the Sanders movement and it really was a movement in the in the guise of a of an election campaign, uh, crushed by the Democratic Party establishment on the eve of Super Tuesday primaries back in early March. That's the only reason why this very unattractive candidate Joe Biden became president because Barack Obama and the Democratic establishment forced the other candidates out. Uh, that way, they could unite around someone. That someone was Joe Biden. Uh, Biden then became the, the sort of the recipient of all of the Democratic Party establishment machines maneuvers. He gets the nomination. Bernie retreats. He surrenders. He kind of goes out with a whimper, not a bang. And, uh, you know, but again, even though he could have fought, he didn't fight because he said the most important thing, the most important thing is to get Joe Biden to be president right now. We must defeat Donald Trump. 
And here we are where the Democrats have achieved all the things they said we, we those who uh, support progress, must do. Support the Democrats so they win both houses of Congress and the White House so they can do whatever they want. And here we are. They can do whatever they want. Here's Bernie on CNN. You just heard Mitt Romney say that Republicans like him have shown that they are ready to compromise. So should Democrats move to pass coronavirus relief with 51 votes if they can't get Republicans support, say, before the impeachment trial? Well, I don't know what the word compromise means. I know that working families are living today in more economic desperation than since the Great Depression. And if Republicans are willing to work with us to address that crisis, welcome, let's do it. But what we cannot do is wait weeks and weeks and months and months to go forward. We have got to act now. That is what the American uh, people want. Now, as you know, reconciliation, which is a Senate rule, was used by the Republicans under Trump to pass massive tax breaks for the rich and large corporations. It was used as an attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, And what we are saying is, you use it for that, that's fine. We're going to use reconciliation, that is 50 votes in the Senate plus the vice president, to pass legislation desperately needed by working families in this country right now. You did it, we're going to do it, but we're going to do it to protect ordinary people, not just the rich and the powerful. All right, Esther, they can do it. We know they can do it. Bernie Sanders is not wrong. He, You know, there's something about that tone, though. We can do it. We can do it. But there's not like we are going to do it because, in fact, they're not going to do it. Anyway, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that Sanders is representing his wing that he dragged into the party and is hoping to keep in the party. He is the chairman of the budget committee in the Senate now, and his supporters are actually putting out a, a fundraiser uh, sporting his, uh, his, his popular meme from the inauguration with his Vermont, you know, all weather jacket and his famous mittens uh, to, you know, I guess rally the troops around Bernie as chairman of the Senate committee now. And I think that there's a difference between uh, the power he's able to wield as chairman and really whether he'll be undermined by Schumer and really not given the support that he should be given by those same right-wing Democrats, Manchin, who are basically going behind his back and aligning with the Republicans. So again, you know, even though it's a celebration of sorts for the Bernie wing that he's there, he his hands are somewhat tied if he can't get support from the entire party. And I think it's important uh, what he said uh, in this clip in terms of, of this is what the Democrats ran on. This is what perhaps propelled the Georgia Democrats to victory in Georgia, promising this relief and this addressing the needs and the pain of Americans right now, not Uh, going back to business as usual and playing these games in the Senate. Nicole, um, you know, Bernie, Bernie is, you know, an important voice. I I actually think if Bernie Sanders in the liberal wing of the party, uh, instead of sort of doing the hand wringing thing about like, we need to do this, why aren't we doing this? I mean, if they actually told the people of this country we need a million people to go into the streets to demand that which is necessary. 
In other words, not to sit on the sidelines and act as spectators, hoping, hoping, hoping that the Democrats do the right thing, but going out and fighting for it, which is, in fact, the only way anything has ever happened. If the liberal wing of the party did that, uh, people would come out because people are looking for a way to show opposition. But again, you know, it's all within the confines of the the existing legislative machinery. And it feels to me, it feels to me like this, and it's it's not just a feeling. The role of the Senate, the checks and balances that we are told as we are, you know, sort of propagandized about when we're children in school, the real check is to make sure nothing really progressive happens if it threatens Wall Street or corporate elites or their profits or their privileges. And that's exactly what needs to happen. Right. I mean, there's this this ridiculous circular logic that's like, well, you know, we can't pass any of this because it's very important that we have unity between the two parties, which, you know, the Republicans never worry about. They don't think about any of that. They don't care about unity. Um, and well, you know, it's important to have Democrats like Joe Manchin because we couldn't get a Democrat elected in, in West Virginia. It's so conservative. Well, if the Democrats stood for the things that workers need, if they stood for actually making sure there were jobs in West Virginia, if they stood for actually making sure that people had food on their table and health care and all the things that people need, and that was something the Democratic Party was championing, I bet you could get somebody elected in West Virginia who talked about stuff like that and wasn't just a Joe Manchin type who stands up and essentially whenever anything is going to possibly be talked about to be passed that could be progressive says, no, 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 I'm actually a Republican. Um, and it's not just Manchin. It's the fact that that Schumer to your, you know, all of these, everyone's points here, that all of these people are standing up and preventing anything real from happening. Right. We have one more real quick clip from, from Bernie. Again, this is his interview on CNN. Then, Walter, I want to get your final comments. And I want to move on to another part of our assessment of the Biden administration. And that has to do with Biden's foreign policy, which I have to say, as we are hearing from Anthony Blinken, is 100% imperialist, not a surprise there. But I, I want to explore some of it, including uh, Blinken and Biden's position on Venezuela. But let's hear a little bit more from Bernie Sanders and then, Walter, get your final comments. I know you're following this. I know you're writing about this. Uh, you have another major article up on liberationnews.org. But let's listen first to Bernie Sanders. And what's your timeline on that? As soon as we possibly can. Look, Donna, you know, I know these are crazy times. We've got a new president in. We're dealing with the horrors of this pandemic, which also have got to be addressed immediately. We have not done a good job in producing the amount of vaccine that we need and certainly getting it into the arms of people. Do you want it done before the, the impeachment trial starts? We got to do everything. I mean, this is not, you don't have the time to sit around, you know, weeks on impeachment and not get vaccines into the arms of people. You don't have time to worry about vaccines and not be able to fact that children in America are going hungry. We got to break through this old approach that the Senate takes years and years to do anything. We got a crisis right now. We can chew bubble gum and walk at the same time. The American people are hurting and they want us to act. That's what our candidates ran for. In this mm -hmm. election, that's what the guys in Georgia won on. And we have got to reaffirm the faith of the American people in government that we can respond to their pain. You know, Walter, 
Bernie Sanders always says what should happen, but he's not saying this is what's going to happen. We're going to make it happen. Uh, again, it's it's got these kind of escape clauses in his speech uh, because he's a person with authority. Uh, he's a you know the, going to be the chairperson of an important Senate committee. Even more importantly, millions of people were looking to Bernie. They were coming to his rallies. Uh, again, if he wanted to call them out, they would come out. Uh, but it's kind of a hand-wringing thing. It says, we need this, we need this. And she says, the the interviewer asked, is this going to happen? And he said, well, is this going to happen before impeachment? And he said, we need to do everything. Again, uh, in a way, uh, Bernie is to the left of Biden, clearly, but not acting at all in a decisive way. Because I get, I, I think really fundamentally, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, which is admittedly better than the Democratic Party establishment, doesn't want to break with the Democratic Party establishment, wants to be part of the team, wants to be a lobby in there. But lobbying uh, the center of the, of the Democratic Party, which in Europe would be a right-wing party, maybe center-right, but definitely on the right, not the left. This is not the left, everybody. This is the right. Uh, there's the in American politics and bourgeois politics, we have the right, the far right, the ultra ultra right, uh, and there's kind of a fine line between all of them. Anyway, let's get your final thoughts. Yeah, well, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, you know, you can tell that Sanders understands that impeachment is a pretty terrible idea from from that. I mean, you can kind of read between the lines. I mean, he he understands that, right? But if you're committed, he didn't, wait a second, Walter. He didn't say so, though. He didn't say that, so. That's right. That's right. Because if you're if you're committed to a long term strategy of trying to realign or move to the left or move in a progressive direction, the Democratic Party, um, you you know that that restrains your ability to level the type of you know stinging harsh criticism that needs to be raised uh, when the Democratic Party establishment does things that are completely ridiculous and in fact give uh, a massive gift to the extreme far ultra right. Um, Wait a yeah, second. I mean, Let me just ask you, Walter, just to make clear, are you saying that impeachment is a gift to the right? Yeah, I, I would definitely make that argument. I mean, we we can't be overly predictive in politics, but but I think that there are clear signs that the impeachment process is shaping up to be a massive political gift to Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump right now is isolated. I mean, he he just put a lot of his key allies in Congress in a position where they might have been kidnapped or even killed. Um, he could be arrested immediately right now. Donald Trump is a private citizen. He's not protected by presidential immunity. And he obviously, on national television, incited a seditious insurrection and unleashed the fascist-led mob on the Congress, right? He could be arrested right now. But instead, they're they're impeaching somebody who is no longer the president. They're putting him on trial. And the most serious punishment that Trump could face uh, if he is convicted, which, which I actually think is increasingly unlikely, but if he is... Uh, convicted, he would be barred from running for president 
in 2024. That's obviously what the the Democrats are after here. And so that's that's a perfect narrative for him. I mean, just like he did in the first impeachment, in the, the early 2020 impeachment, he's going to present himself as a victim of persecution by the political elites, by the Washington establishment, who want to take away the American people's right to choose whichever president they want in 2024. Uh, he'll present it, I think, effectively as a completely partisan political maneuver. And so, you know, even if the Republican Party establishment, if the senators who are going to be jurors in the trial are privately, personally anti-Trump, they're going to make a political calculation. And so not just this narrative, right, not just this narrative that's favorable to Trump, but also the threat that Trump will form a third party. Uh, On Trump's last full day in office on January 19th, the Wall Street Journal ran an article that I think was clearly planted there by, by Trump himself or, you know, his operatives that, uh, re, you know, quoted unnamed sources saying that Trump is considering forming a far-right third party that he would call the Patriot Party. And because of the winner-take-all nature of U.S. politics, even if Trump is only able to win over, you know, a, a relatively small fraction, a minority of Republican Party voters to the Patriot Party, that means that the Democrats would be able to sweep elections with a plurality, but not a majority of the votes, meaning that formerly, you know, completely locked up safe Republican seats in Congress would suddenly become toss ups. So so Trump really has a lot of leverage in an impeachment trial situation. I think it's increasingly uncertain, unlikely that the Democrats will be able to find 17 Republican senators to vote to convict. Uh, and then if Trump is acquitted, then that's that's his pass. That's his get out of jail free card to reinsert himself into mainstream politics. I agree with Walter, and I want to say a few words about it. But Nicole, go ahead. Jump in. Well, I think one thing that's important, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people in the kind of liberal establishment saying, well, the only thing that matters right now is making sure that Trump can't run again in 2024. Well, that's a law that can be passed, but laws can also be, you know, reversed. That's something that can happen. I mean, we're watching right now as Lloyd Austin, who's Biden's nominee to run uh, the Pentagon, is getting an exemption for, um, you know, against this regulation of not having, um, you know, people who are too recently having been in the military or having run the military become heads of the Pentagon are supposed to be civilian control. These, you know, laws can be changed. I think Trump is way more dangerous as if he somehow can rehabilitate himself in the eyes of all of the white supremacist fascist militias. If he can, if he as a private citizen is able to build that kind of a white supremacist fascist movement or, you know, all of the things he can do outside of office between now and 2024, I think those are way more dangerous. He should, you know, than whether he can run or not run in 2024. And so I I really, you know, the fact that there are so many people saying this is the biggest component, this is the biggest thing that, you know, it's not. They could arrest him right now and he couldn't lead anything. Well, there's a, there's a, there's, this is a nuanced issue, I think, that we have to sort of uh, spend another moment on. I mean, the fascists are using Trump, and Trump is using the fascists, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters. There are other fascistic armed militias. But then there's the larger part of the Trump voters who are not fascists. They are uh, taken with Donald Trump or conned by Donald Trump or appealed to Donald Trump with different sort of messaging. They're angry at the Democratic Party elites. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons why Trump or Trumpism has developed in America. And 
of course, the the fascists are one thing, but the the other and I think more important issue is what happens to the Trump voters who maybe are temporarily under the spell of Trump, but who could be won over to a progressive position, could be won over uh, in a way that would break them away from Trump and Trumpism. The the impeachment process uh, doesn't have any consequences for Trump. He's not going to be unable to continue to function. Losing his losing his Twitter handle would be far more significant uh, in, a, in his ability to communicate to his supporters than impeachment. Impeachment will make him look like a martyr, but without consequences. What the, what the Biden administration could do is arrest Trump for seditious conspiracy. Now, there's some, some people on the left say, oh, you shouldn't talk about using laws because that will just reinforce the state and the state's repressive capacity. I don't think that's the point. If the PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, or the Black Lives Matter movement, or any anti-war movement had a, a mob, a violent mob, come and assault Congress, make Congress people run for their lives, hide uh, in the course of the assault that police officers were attacked, at least one uh, died, perhaps two actually died. I don't think there's any question that we would be arrested for seditious conspiracy. Seditious conspiracy says if two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or, hear this, to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States or by force, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that clearly happened on January 6th. Trump was the instigator of a seditious conspiracy. If Trump was actually charged with seditious conspiracy and at the same time the Democrats went forward not compromising with the Republicans, but actually provided that which millions and tens of millions of working class people who are in dire straits right now, things that people actually needed, restore their health care, make health care universally available, make sure that no one was going to be evicted, cancel the rents, provide not $2,000 a month one time, but every month for all of those in need, you'd make a significant dent inside of Trump's base, which is not fascistic, the part that's not fascistic, the part that's just people who are alienated from the Democrats, those who are sick and tired of politics as usual, those who may have been conned by Trump's demagogy, those people can be appealed to with a forceful presentation. And again, impeachment makes Trump look like a martyr, but it's just theater. Actually, arresting Trump for seditious conspiracy would, yes, make him a martyr for some, but at the same time, it would have a very impact, a very profound impact on Trump's capacities. And the fact of the matter is, if there was equal justice under the law, Trump, like we, if we did what happened on January 6th, would be arrested. And in fact, the fact the fact that he's not arrested, the fact that he and his top officials, the ones who really pulled this thing together on January 6th, are not arrested, shows that there is discretion shows that there is discretionary prosecution, that the heavy hand of the state is meant for working class and progressive and black and Latino people and indigenous people, but that the right wing, the billionaires get off. And I think that's a really, really important political message 
that could be sent but is not being sent. Anyway, uh, Esther, I'll give you your, you'll get the final words on this topic before we move on to talk about uh, uh, Joe Biden's foreign policy. I wanted to add, uh, before you get off the topic, that the FBI is now talking about not charging the hundreds of people who came into the Capitol who didn't, quote unquote, commit violence or acts of vandalism. And I think this is another sign that the this mob is being treated way different than Black Lives Matter would be treated, anti-war activists would be treated. The Reverend William Barber talked this week about how they went to pray. The Poor People's Campaign went to the Capitol to pray uh, and didn't even get up the steps. And I guess 40,000 people in the Poor People's Campaign, if my number is right, were arrested across the country in this day of action uh, at the U.S. Capitol and at capitals across the country for, for merely approaching capitals to pray. And when you, you look at how now the FBI is talking about not even charging many of the people after we've already talked about how they let them go, they didn't kettle them. This is, this is just really contributing to the, the, uh, letting people, let me just say, get out of jail free, not only, to, not only for Trump, but many of the people who came there, uh, with, with intent to act in an act of insurrection and in an act of sedition. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I think those points about uh, from Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign are very salient. Uh, again, as we have said in other, on other episodes, we, I, I was, I'm a, one of the organizers, national coordinator of the Answer Coalition. We organized a march of 100,000 people on September 15, 2007, from the White House, where Trump was, to the Capitol. Uh, on the west side, and we were met by riot-clad police. We were tear gassed, pepper sprayed, uh, mass arrested. Uh, you know, they took us all the way to trial. And uh, again, the Capitol Police, if they want to, certainly can defend that building. They have 2,300 Capitol Police, and their only job is to defend the Capitol. You know, like most days, it's not under, you know, violent assault or even protest. Uh, and yet here was this well-planned, well-announced uh, mass action against the Capitol where, as we now know, all the reports show that the FBI was exchanging information with the Capitol Police and they had their own information that people were coming to the Capitol with guns, with other weapons. In fact, they planted bombs and they still didn't even like get dressed up in riot gear. And they were told in advance the rules of engagement. Don't use pepper spray. Don't use tear gas. Certainly don't use your firearms. Anyway, let's go on to another topic. Again, we're, we're taking a look at who is the Biden administration or what is it? What is its political character? What is it anyway? And again, a lot of people voted for Biden because he wasn't Trump. And we understand that. We understand why people want to get rid of Trump. We want to get rid of Trump too and Trumpism. But the Democratic Party paved the way for Trumpism. The Democratic Party's policies, in fact, in so many ways, are just like Donald Trump's. And, uh, you know, Biden supporters might not want to hear that. But let's listen, uh, uh, Esther, to uh, this is Anthony Blinken, the new Secretary of State. He's testifying at a Senate committee. I think it's before Marco Rubio. And he's making it clear 
that Juan Guaido, who the Trump administration illegally announced was the elected president of Venezuela, even though he never ran for president, and even though 85% of Venezuelans had never heard of the man before this, uh, they said, yeah, he's the president. And the U.S. got other countries to uh, say that they weren't going to recognize Maduro, the elected president of Venezuela, that they were going to recognize Juan Guaido. And they were carrying out this effort to you know, have regime change, an illegal, internationally sponsored coup d'etat. Juan Guaido was on the American government's payroll. I mean, it's so illegal and, it, and it's also failing. And there's a new national assembly that's just been elected in Venezuela. Juan Guaido and his team decided not to participate, even though they were invited to participate. So they're not even in the National Assembly. So here's an opportunity for Biden to say, well, yeah, we we may have problems with uh, Maduro, blah, 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 the usual imperial uh, sort of propaganda talking points, but we're not going to recognize Juan Guaido because he, in fact, was selected by Donald Trump and Bolton. He he was their puppet, but they didn't do that. Let's listen to this uh, amazing exchange. We have two audio clips between... Blinken and Marco Rubio. Is it your view that the situ- that our stance towards Venezuela should change in essence that we should no longer recognize Juan Guaido and, and, and enter into negotiations with, with Maduro? No, it is not. Uh, I very much agree with you, uh, Senator, first of all, uh, with regard to a number of the steps that were taken uh, toward Venezuela uh, in, uh, in recent years. Uh, including recognizing uh, Mr. Guaido, uh, recognizing the National Assembly as the only democratically uh, elected institution uh, in Venezuela, um, seeking to increase pressure on the regime uh, led by a brutal dictator uh, in Maduro, uh, as well as to um, uh, try to work uh, with some of our allies and partners. uh, The the hard part is that uh, for all of uh, those efforts, which, uh, which I support, um, we obviously have not gotten the results uh, that, uh, that we need. And one of the things I would really welcome doing, uh, if confirmed, is, is to come and talk some of that, uh, that through with you uh, and with others on this committee, because um, we need uh, an effective policy that can restore uh, Venezuela uh, to, uh, to democracy, starting with free and fair elections. And how uh, can we best uh, advance that ball? Wow, Esther, you know, his only real suggested difference is that uh, it wasn't effective. They didn't succeed with Juan Guaido, but they recognize Juan Guaido. I mean, you can't get more imperialist than this. I mean, imperialism is a system. It's also a policy. But there's this attitude of arrogance and hubris and imperialism and chauvinism. That's Anthony Blinken the new star of Trump, of Biden's, <laughs> uh, Freudian slip, of Biden's uh, foreign policy team. Right. So that Senate confirmation hearing was held for Blinken a day before the inauguration. And so when Joe Biden was being inaugurated a day later, he referenced the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol as being an assault on democracy But as we just heard, his new administration was already committed to continuing the violent assault on the democratically elected government of Venezuela. So as we know, the assault over the past years has included illegal sanctions, 
that have already killed tens of thousands of Venezuelans. And it includes a ridiculous policy of recognizing that far-right opposition leader Juan Guaido as the legitimate president of Venezuela, even though Guaido has never been elected as president there. So we know that Venezuela holds the largest oil reserves in the world. And since the people back the Bolivarian revolution spearheaded by former president Hugo Chavez, who nationalized the country's oil wealth to provide more benefit to the people rather than to just American and other multinational corporations, Venezuela has been targeted particularly by the United States and its allies, former European colonial powers that have raped Venezuela and other global South countries of their natural resources and are continuing to carry out acts of piracy and massive theft of Venezuelan assets. And so this is the policy turbocharged by the Obama-Biden administration that Trump ramped up even further and that now it seems that Biden or Obama 3.0 is pledging to continue. So at the hearing, we heard Blinken talking about proposing more pain and illegal war to sovereign countries because they have solidarity with Venezuela, countries like Cuba, countries like Iran. And people don't realize that, you know, Guaido is leader of a far right movement, a racist movement that has carried out violent attacks on the government in Venezuela. And these attacks make what happened here on January 6th look like a peaceful demonstration. They include torching the country's Supreme Court, torching the attorney general's office and other public facilities, uh, collaborating with mercenaries in the attempted assassination plots against uh, the elected president, uh, Nicolas Maduro. And if you total, total them all up, the murder of at least 49 people in these violent street attacks that included decapitating decapitating people as they uh, drove motorcycles down the street, kind of like clotheslining people. And the lynching, the burning alive of an Afro-Venezuelan man, Orlando Figueroa, because the Black people in Venezuela, long subjected to racist repression by the white elite in the country, uh, Black people were recognized to be overwhelmingly in support of the Bolivarian Revolution which instituted new policies and laws outlawing, you know, racist repression. You know, so for me, knowing these facts, it was, it wasn't really possible to watch the inauguration without understanding the hypocrisy, which you talked about the white supremacy, the hubris, the just outrageous irony, uh, outrageous irony related to the hand wringing over the fragility of democracy in this country because of January 6th. I mean, it was not even possible for me to overlook the, hypocrisy of lauding the young poet, the uh, wonderful poet, Amanda Gorman, uh, who's overcome uh, disabilities and and a lot of challenges in her life as an artist. You know, uh, I couldn't even really enjoy that uh, because she would be the target. Someone looking like her, who looks like her, would be the target of vicious attacks by the far-right party represented by Juan Guaido. So I just as progressives, we can't let the Obama effect, what we call the Obama effect, the masking of the true condition and pain of uh, the Pan-African Black experience to be papered over in Black culture, imagery, symbolism, or even words uh, that would kind of merge Black people in the United States to stand with like a, American exceptionalism and not with the uh, Black people around the globe.
I couldn't agree with you more, Esther. And before we leave this subject, this issue, I want to go back to play one more short audio clip from that Senate confirmation hearing with Blinken, the incoming Secretary of State. Uh, He talks about, as you mentioned, uh, Venezuela's enablers, meaning like the countries that provide oil or food for Venezuela so that Venezuelans can live, so that Venezuelan Venezuela can actually survive uh, in the face of these draconian, slow-motion, genocidal sanctions. Uh, it's, it's, it says so much about who Blinken is and who the Biden administration is when they, when they talk about their power to inflict pain and suffering and to use food and medicine as a weapon in their foreign policy. Um, I think there's some things that we can uh, look at, particularly better, uh, stronger coordination cooperation with like-minded countries. Uh, Maybe we need to look at how we more effectively target uh, the sanctions that we have so that regime enablers really feel the pain uh, of those sanctions. Esther and Nicole and Walter, we're going to continue to follow the the story of Biden's foreign policy directed against the people of Venezuela and Iran and Cuba. Maybe there will be some tactical tweaking of Trump's foreign policy. But there we have it, straight out, the arrogance, the hubris, the racism, the imperialism that saturates the Biden administration. The United States uh, has promoted fascism abroad over and over again, and and extreme white supremacist policies. I mean, uh, everywhere, you you know, here you have the Democrats complaining about uh, the fascist-led assault on January 6th, which, of course, was, as we have pointed out forcefully, a seditious conspiracy and something that everyone in the United States who believes in progress should be alarmed about and should be uh, organizing about and exposing, but the same Democratic Party that was the target and the Republican establishment that were the target of this fascist-led assault in January 6th, they're more than happy to promote a fascism and white supremacy in pursuit of imperialist goals everywhere else. In Venezuela, uh, certainly in Ukraine, the, uh, the fascist-led takeover of the government in Ukraine in 2014 that was championed by Victoria Nuland, who's now a top leader in the State Department under Biden again, and John McCain, a leader of the Republican Party, a bipartisan imperialist endeavor to overthrow the Yanukovych government. Yanukovych was corrupt, of course, we know that. Democratically elected, though, and trying to be somewhat neutral between East and West. And the U.S. wanted a puppet regime. And the way to get a puppet regime was to use far-right, Nazi, and I'm not saying that hyperbolically, fascist forces to carry out an armed insurrection that, as you pointed out, Esther, uh, was just like January 6th, except far worse, you know, far more effective and heavily armed. And of course, people were lynched and killed afterwards. There was the the burning of progressives in the trade union building in Odessa. More than 30 were killed. The mob surrounded them and set them aflame. Uh, The U.S. was all for that kind of uh, action. Again, all in the pursuit of imperialism. I want to go real quick. I know we're really almost out of time, but talking about support for white supremacists and racists and 
fascist or semi-fascist forces. I have to say, Nicole, that the U.S. media, including the pro-Biden, anti-Trump media and the Trump media, the corporate-owned media, have been all about a Navalny and the protest movement in Russia. And people don't actually know that Navalny, too, like Juan Guaido, is in fact the promoter of extreme right-wing nationalism and racism and national chauvinism. That's who he really is. But because he's an opponent of Putin, he's be- he's a beloved figure by pro-democratic forces, I'm using air quotes, in the United States. Brian, the Western press has been full of headlines uh, of protests over the weekend in Russia in support of Alexei Navalny. On January 17th, Navalny returned to Moscow from Germany, where he was recuperating from uh, an alleged poisoning. He said it was um, the Russian government who had poisoned him. He was arrested when he returned um, to Moscow. He was arrested for breaking the terms of his sentence for a fraud and money laundering conviction, where he actually only got probation for that sentence. The poisoning happened when he was on a flight. He became ill. This was late 2020. He'd been allegedly poisoned by Novichok, an incredibly powerful nerve agent, Um, though the first hospital he went to in Siberia didn't actually find that. He was then transferred to a German hospital where they said, yes, this is Novichok, but then they wouldn't release any of his medical data. Then 33 days later, after being poisoned by a very, very highly deadly, very dangerous nerve agent, he was released. He was fine. And he came back to Russia. So again, this has made huge headlines in the West where accusations are running freely that clearly Putin or the Russian government went after and poisoned this very remote political figure. He pulls at about 2% usually. Um, You know, but if that was the case, there's a number of holes in these stories. Why actually, you know, why wouldn't they actually kill him if they're, you know, poisoning him with this incredibly dangerous nerve agent? Why give him whatever it was that incapacitated him instead? Why let him leave for the hospital in Germany? Why do any of this when he's actually far less well known before this whole incident happened? I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And there's a lot of uh, very intelligent analysts who are um, saying that that's not really what happened. But I think the the big part of the story here that I want to talk about is um, is to your point, his actual political character. He's for a long time described himself as a nationalist. Um, he's incredibly racist, xenophobic, anti-Muslim. He's really a disgusting politician and who, again, doesn't really have that much support in the Russian public. Um, he has referred to people from Georgia, Georgians, as rodents. He's preached against Muslims and a program that Russia has to help build mosques. He referred to people from the Caucasus as cockroaches. This was actually in a campaign ad, in a campaign ad, which is, of course, a public video that you're using to sell your beliefs to people. And these are the beliefs he decided he wanted to sell. So um, it, over the past few years, um, he's he's realized or, you know, has tried to start calling himself an anti-corruption activist. Um, but in a, in a really interesting piece in The Guardian, um, the reporter asks him, and I'm, I'm just going to read from this Guardian piece now. He says, I ask him if he regrets these videos now, and he's unapologetic. He sees it as a strength that he can speak to both liberals and nationalists. But comparing migrants to cockroaches? That was artistic license, he says. So there's nothing at all from those videos or that period that he regrets? No, Navalny says firmly. So, you know, he's calling himself now this anti-corruption activist. But the last thing I'll say is that even with this ridiculous title, he's also already been convicted twice of fraud and embezzlement. One of one case was brought by the Russian government and one was brought by French Cosmetics Corporation 
uh, Yves Rocher. I mean, it, it's just it's he's clearly this very manipulative, very right wing figure in Russia, not some sort of anti-corruption freedom fighter. Yeah, he wants to be Donald Trump, actually. I mean, the caucuses are the countries of Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. They're considered dark-skinned people. Uh, they are considered not part of the white Russian scene. There's a lot of racism directed against people in the caucuses. You know, when the Russian Revolution happened in 1917, Lenin described Russia as the prison house of nations and demanded that the Bolshevik party uh, put at the top of its political program self-determination for oppressed nations and made a cause out of fighting against any manifestation of great Russian chauvinism. Uh, and, and if you read Lenin, if you read the works of the Russian socialist and Marxist movement, opposing racism and what would be the equivalent here of white supremacist thinking was considered paramount to the Russian revolutionary program. For those who who think Navalny is the victim of uh, a right-wing authoritarian government, however one might want to characterize the Putin government, just remember that Navalny in power would be far to the right of Putin. And what the United States is seeking is to overthrow the Russian government just as they're seeking to overthrow the government in Venezuela or the government in Iran or the government in North Korea or the government in China. And each and every time they carry out regime change operations, they give it a noble cause. They're fighting for freedom or democracy or to stop weapons of mass destruction or to protect civilians in the case of Libya. There's always a noble cause, but beneath the public rationale, beneath the explanation, it's not noble at all. The imperialist government here in the United States that speaks in our name uh, wants to carry out regime change, not because they believe in freedom or democracy. Don't forget what they're, you know, they're not carrying out regime change in Saudi Arabia. They're doing it because they have their own imperial interests. Venezuela, which we talked about in the U.S. support for the coup d'etat in Venezuela, uh, well, Let's not forget Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the Western Hemisphere. Let's not forget that uh, the Bolivarian Revolution led by Hugo Chavez became a partner with the Cuban Revolution in the Ecuadorian and Bolivian political processes to liberate Latin America, not only from Yankee imperialism, but from the, the scourge of unemployment and poverty. These governments are targeted not because they're undemocratic, but because they stand in the way of U.S. imperial objectives. And those objectives, if you believe in freedom, if you believe in democracy, have to be rejected because the objectives of U.S. imperialism are nothing more than to maintain global domination so that Wall Street bankers continue to exploit the globe, so that the U.S. military industrial complex continues to dominate or threaten those who want to be free all over the world. If you believe in freedom and democracy, you have to reject Navalny. You have to reject Juan Guaido. Doesn't mean you have to be an absolute supporter of the Putin government, but you must recognize that the U.S. wants to overthrow the Russian government, not for freedom, but in order to have either a puppet government in Moscow or just to weaken Russia overall. Anyway, we have to always put each and every struggle 
and especially in the you know a time period where demonization is the weapon of first choice for imperialism we have to put each and every struggle in the context and framework of the global struggle against imperialism You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Mm-hmm.